From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm your host, Ryan Gore, and joining me today on this podcast, we have writer for Central Source, for Notion, for Euphoria, for a little bit for OK Player, a little bit for um, Guap, and I'm sure like a million publications more. I was going to say, is that all off top, or are you you reading those? No, I'm not reading, I'm just trying to remember. (laughs) And soon-to-be British man, Mickey Elbeck. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Always furthering the uh, UK uh, R&B agenda on this podcast as much as I can, for sure. Um, and uh, Ryan's also talking about me coming to the UK in April. For That'll be the fourth time I'm in the UK, but it's been a while. Um, and yeah, uh, had to talk about these pieces today. Yeah. And the first time I'm going to see Mickey with my eyes, what a, what a feast for them. <laughs> um, also joining me is a man who is not going to be British anytime soon, unfortunately, awesome. but is the managing editor at Essential Source and also a contributor to OK Player. It's Brandon Hill. What's up, guys? Um, yeah. Podcast. Let's go. Yeah, podcast, let's go, famous words. Um, <laughs> before we jump into podcast, let's go, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we've been uh, listening to recently. So, Brandon, I'll go back to you. Uh, Deontay Hitchcock, new EP, came out of nowhere. I was not, like, ready for that release. And it's super cool that um, both Byrie Dende and Chris Patrick are all on the EP, um, who, you know, if you're a, a longtime listener of the podcast or follower of Central Sauce, um you are probably well informed of at this point. But yeah, I mean, it's just really cool to see them, you know, get on um, an official project like that from someone like Deontay Hitchcock, uh, who me and Mickey have both talked about, you know, as one of our, I think, favorite rappers doing it right now. Also nice to hear from Deontay, like the more R&B direction of the project too. Um, Definitely didn't get quite as much of that on the last album. So it's nice to see that kind of, you know, four song uh, pack go a little bit of a different direction. Uh, other than that, yeah, a lot of a lot of Saba. Um, new song by Odessa is also heat. Check that out. Mm, yeah, I saw that um, Deontay Hitchcock, Hitchcock dropped out of nowhere. I, didn't, I haven't checked it out yet, but it's cool. They kind of just dropped something out of nowhere. Um, yeah, how about you, Mickey? Um, yeah, well, I mentioned the UK R&B agenda, and I found my first favorite album uh, in that sphere uh, for the year. Actually, shout out to our friend Joshima, who put me on to... The album, uh, Maverick Saber. I don't know if you you rock with Maverick Saber, Ryan, or know who that is. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know where in the UK he's from, but his album, which I'm going to forget the name of, but I've I've run it back like five to six times in the last week and a half. Uh, definitely in my top of the year thus far. Uh, yeah, shout out that one for sure. Yeah, I'm just looking it up now. Um, you know what's funny is he had he's a Irish. He, he, Oh, he's Irish. So he's not British. He's not British. Yeah. Oh, glad I said UK and not. <laughs> not Ireland, Ireland isn't part of the UK, man. Oh, woo! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yikes. I'm just saying that because they'll come for you. They'll, yeah, they'll yeah, yeah. You. Thanks for the <laughs> um, Yeah, but he was. He had a featured song on uh, Ocean Wisdom, who I did a cover story for at the beginning of 2021's album. So that's when I had heard him before, but I had never heard any of his solo stuff. Um, this album's really crazy. Nice. Um, yeah, so for me, 
it's been a lot of Mitski, man. I really, really like this Mitski album. Um, I don't think... I think Tyler is the only one on Central Source who have actually talked about Mitski too. But I know uh, M- Mickey, like her music is never reconnected with you, right? So like... <laughs> We're gonna make like, I just we're gonna that. make that a theme of this podcast today too, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was gonna come up. Uh, most likely. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like I remember when the album came out, I was like said to Mickey's like, it's not gonna change your opinion of Mitski, but she does do a lot of new stuff and I'm really, really liking the new uh, kind of direction she takes on a lot of these tracks. Um it felt a bit weird to me at first because like a lot of them go into this quite quite like 80s synth pop inspired thing that a lot of pop music has right now and that was slightly jarring but i think overall like her writing just stays consistently brilliant in my opinion so getting a lot of enjoyment from that uh Sabre as well great album to listen to on the plane by the way um <laughs> and um i haven't even had a chance to talk about the other album on here which i think is just another addition to just a great catalog that i was building and um i haven't even got the chance to talk about the jpeg mafia album from last year which that guy just goes from strength to strength um i'm just so impressed with his output since um all my heroes are cornballs and i think that's almost everything i didn't have a look at my apple music before i did this (laughs) but yeah shout out to those albums for sure um so yeah let's get into this episode then and we'll start with a piece that mickey brought yeah, um, I was really excited even when I saw the 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 title of this piece, and it really delivered uh, from what I I hoped for when I saw the title. The piece is "I Made Beats with New York Drills Drill Raps Hottest Producer Cash Cobain," and it's by Abe Beam for GQ. Um, I've done this a few other times on the podcast with pieces I've brought, um, and I think maybe I do this kind of inherently is things that I when I read something where I'm like, damn, I wish I thought of that. Um, but this is definitely right in a kind of a wheelhouse of, of the style of pieces that I've, I've been um, really intrigued to, to, to do myself. And, and this was a very unique way of constructing a piece of journalism, I thought, and um, uh, a really cool way of highlighting producers, which if you've been following the f- podcast or my personal writing is a thing that I like to do as much as humanly possible. Um, so yeah, it uh, it's an inventive way to to craft a written story that the reader can actively interact with is specifically what makes this piece so unique. So Abe brought a set of samples to uh, the Bronx drill producer Cash Cobain for him to flip into drill beats and basically broke down the experience. Um, I personally gave Cash Cobain an honorable mention in my best producers of 2021 list for OK Player. So I personally concur with how much his individual work within the sphere of sample drill in the Bronx needed to be highlighted. Also, I wanted to shout out our guy at Central Sauce, Donnie Durag, for actually putting me on to Cash's production uh, superiority in the drill sample space. Um, So shout out Donnie. Uh, I thought Abe's early paragraphs that that had a condensed breakdown of the drill sound history leading into Cash's innovation gave a really slick intro to his sound, 
where and where it comes from for those who may not know he outlines how cash added the new york tradition of recognizable soul samples over drill style style production as it had advanced through chicago the uk and then brooklyn abe then takes us through his thought process of how he was going to pick the samples and present them as a progression of challenges then the piece unfolds as a slow reveal of him presenting the beats and how cash dissects them and makes them compositions it's a really cool piece, I think, of storytelling through the lens of an innovative artist's craft. Um, so that's just kind of a general overview of the... Um, oh, and I don't know if I really... There also is um, the actual beats themselves linked in the piece, so you can kind of go on the the narrative journey with Abe as he's in the studio with Cash. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the kind of overview of the whole piece and what I thought was generally really cool. And we can get into specifics, but firstly, what did you guys think of the piece and the way Abe executed it? Ryan, you want to start? Yeah, so it's a really ambitious article, which is funny because that's not a word I'll reuse if it was like a video. Because um, it'd be a cool video, I think the idea is inherently interesting. But calling it ambitious... It's because the concept for this piece isn't really something that immediately seems suitable for the written word. Like, you you think about this kind of idea and you think about, like, Rhythm Roulette or something, you'd be like, oh, yeah, cool YouTube video I'd watch, you know? But, like, when comparing mediums like that, like the written word to video, you're always going to lose some things, you're going to gain some others. So the challenge for Abe, in, like, apart from the challenge that he sets for, for, um, for Cobain, is, like... How do I minimize the losses that they would that would be that comes from me converting this into a written piece rather than a video, right? And he also had a challenge of stopping the reader from thinking, why didn't I just why, why isn't this just a video? Why didn't they just film this? Because that's an easy place to jump to, right? Why not just film the process? Because that seems like a cool thing to watch just with your eyes, right? So Abe does a really good job of just like giving you everything the video would give you. Even like you said, including like the audio of the beats, so you can have the experience of him kind of like growing into the session and um, seeing, having the description of how the challenge gets harder, and then hearing the the product of that. So you still get that kind of journey and still get that kind of um, audio sensory stimulation as well. But you see, every, you get everything apart from just seeing it happen. It makes you wonder, like, okay, what is the value of actually seeing it happen? Because the way he makes up for it is due to like this 3D detailed point of view storytelling where you're wedged inside his shoes, like feeling his excitement and his nerves. Because I loved that one bit where he's kind of like, I don't know how this room's going to react to this Spice Girls song coming up. (laughs) (laughs) And you you just don't get that if you're just presented with the video. Uh, It it really is going inside Abe's head, which really... um, makes this piece special and like kind of fulfills the challenge that he kind of set for himself making it a written word yes i think that like leads into the next thing that i wanted to talk about so well which is like the through line of nostalgia throughout the piece and how what Mm -hmm. abe does to advance i think even beyond what really a video could offer and why he even makes the written piece feel like this is how this piece was supposed to go 
is yeah. crafting his like emotional and nostalgic connection to the process. So like my favorite little section of the piece, which I'll read is he said his crew is unimpressed with the alchemy being performed in front of them when he's watching uh, cash do the do. I think it was the first beat, but I'm amazed by the moment when he fits the loop and the beat starts to take shape the way a Bob Ross, Bob Ross painting looks like an amorphous blob of incongruent colors until with a sudden well-placed stroke, you can see the Vista appearing before your eyes and that's something where you can see someone on video but you don't get the kind of energy that's going along in the room or what's going on inside the person's head who's witnessing the person do the beat making and i think that that is like it's almost like a mission statement for the written word journalism versus video journalism which the industry is pivoting so hard towards is like that's an element that would be lost um, so I think, yeah, I think that was a, a hugely important part of, of, I'm assuming, Abe's process of, of coming up with this piece. And I think it really proved the, the reason for this style of journalism for this kind of piece. What do you think? Brian? Yeah, I've got, I've got another quote, actually, that ties directly into, this is the one I thought you were going to read, too, um, that mm-hmm. ties directly into what you were talking about with the nostalgia of it. And it comes after he's talking about the Spice Girls sample, right? And then you get this, um, this exposition here. As the song plays, the room suddenly goes silent, and I'm transported back to middle school in 1996. I think about how songs age with you and pick up new layers of context, how they're unearthed by the generations that come along later, who find new meaning in the song and add new meaning to it. So you get these, like, really, um, you know, really first-person point of view, like, you're viewing, what, what, what you're viewing, really is the same thing, you know, you see on like an episode of The Cave or something. You get an excellent producer, sits down, chops up this, makes it look insanely easy to chop up this thing, right? But then, like you said, that you get the benefit of you're viewing it through the eyes and through the thoughts of the writer uh, who has this really, really powerful appreciation for what he's seeing, right? And that appreciation translates to the reader, because, you know, he's giving you those thoughts and those sights uh, rather than in the video format, you know, you see the thing yourself and it's mostly um, centered around like your thoughts and your sights. But you're getting it through someone who has this really powerful appreciation uh, for something that might look simple. Right. Right. Well, that makes me think of of the other benefit to to this thing which is funny enough and i think the cave is a good example with with video content specifically because you want it to kind of tell the story in in as quick a way as you can and get the arc of it you can't cut it so it feels like it's in real time you kind of have to jump and there is something about getting the like emotional kind of connection of seeing something happen that actually brings the the kind of journalistic expression of the piece to feel like it's actually moving more in real time so it actually in some sense can make you feel like you're there with them a little bit more as long as you're able to kind of connect your imagination to what the pen is doing. And I think Abe really made it pretty easy to kind of navigate putting yourself in in his position in the room. Yeah, and I think, like, again, talking about that um, video versus written kind of thing, when you watch a video of something, you're kind of looking out through a keyhole, right? You'd never get... You get the one fixed angle you get that one fixed camera angle and what this piece what Abe does in this piece really well is like he describes everything to you he describes the smells he describes how everything looks he describes how everyone's dressed and it's really difficult to like that one bit where he said about the first beat like the people weren't really sure about the first beat at first until it all came together 
you don't really get to read people's expressions like that through a video. So, I mean, the idea of being a fly on the wall can be fulfilled through a video, but this piece made me realize like how much I've missed through that, of how much I've missed through just videos of recording sessions, rather than being in the room, being able to like tap into how people are feeling generally, or just tap into the like, just the way the vibe of the room, I guess. And I think that's really interesting. It's something that Abe made me think about just by the way he wrote this and the way he tackled this. Yeah. Okay, so there's one other um, kind of theme that goes along with the piece that leads into the closing of the piece that I wanted to talk about before we transition into the next piece, um, which is this this idea that's brought together in the last paragraph, which is the don't ask permission, just ask forgiveness kind of idea of like taking a song, putting it together and putting it out. And I think really what was outlined in the piece that ended up kind of coming to this conclusion, which I think Abe set up really well, was this idea of like building this momentum and and getting it to this place where you're kind of like constantly creating and reinventing things and pushing them out and and trying to find that one that becomes that kind of as he mentioned in the last paragraph that juice world sting flip where it just like it gets to be this certain level and then you elevate this whole scene of people who are doing this thing um and i i, I just thought by it made the the outlining of cash's process so purposeful to me like it real it was like if you see how this guy kind of breaks down and flips these things and then like uses this to build onto more things and has to like if you think about putting a bureaucracy in the middle of that and trying to clear the samples to make it happen it like doesn't build the momentum that the movement is going in as quickly because you have to go through all of these details to make it happen um and so kind of and then you know Abe starts talking about how this is like as much attention as it's going, he's really still just building that momentum and let's see where he goes from here. Um, so what do you guys think kind of generally about that, that ideology of, uh, you know, <laughs> don't, don't ask permission, just ask forgiveness. That's like kind of outlined with the sampling that is out of necessity for cash Cobain and how Abe sets it up. Well, I think it's really emblematic of what drill actually is too. Um, and being like a formative producer for drill, you can see how the the mindset of, you know, volume, uh, he specifically calls it like a volume game, um, gives drill some of that gritty DIY texture, right? You know, it's almost like the methods for how something is created um, begin to then give identity to the thing that's created. It becomes uh, almost an aspect of the thing. Um, and I think that you that's really pointed out in this piece earlier on when uh, the writer talks about giving him an acoustic Nirvana uh, song from Unplugged to sample. And he kind of laughs in his head, you know, as you get that exposition, he's like, I expected him to laugh, discard it and throw it away. But but, but Cobain's not even phased by it. You know, he, he describes it as he sits for a minute, you know, he thinks immediately cuts the portion he wants, flips it and starts, you know, adding the drums, the hi-hats and the layers and stuff. Which is, you know, when the way that he ends the piece in that, it becomes characteristic of drill, right? That sort of attitude that I can do anything and I can do it quick. I can flip it and I'm going to move on to the next one. Like that, that becomes part of the identity of the thing. Right. I've, I've seen a lot of different things that kind of talk about the art of, of, quantity over quality a little bit and thinking about it in the context of that itself being an art and like the ability and the technique able to kind of like continually 
do something like drill in that aspect and being a, I think it was Kenny beats. I actually heard funny enough. We keep talking about him about this piece, talk about it in his interview (laughs) with Pharrell, that there's like something about that kind of, or it might've even been like, like alchemist in another interview. Um, but it was like that, that continual ability to do that, to make something of quality over and over again. So there's this like kind of whole cycle of different things that are coming out that there's actually like an artistry within that. And I think that that's, that's really honed in on here in this piece. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that even applies to writing too. That's one of the, the biggest tips that I give people um, talking about writing is like, don't, you can't always just sit and wait for the big thing, you know, the big, great story. Like you, you got to write, you know, you got to just put out quality and quantity. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Very true. Uh, yeah. Any final word on this piece then? We got we got through all I wanted to talk about. Shouts to Abe Beam for uh, for for this piece. I, it was it was inspiring to me and and a really fun read. Yeah, for sure, and definitely something that kind of changed my perspective on like how we represent certain media. I guess I think that's what I want to say. Um, <laughs> so that was I made beats with New York's dri- New York drills New York drill raps hottest producer Cash Cobain by Abe Beam from GQ. Brandon, we'll move on to your piece next. Absolutely. And Mickey, I got you on the, the them- thematic transitions. I know you're always looking for those um, between pieces. And this one actually has a very clear transition now that I've thought about it. Um, so tying into what I said about how the the origins of something and how it's created um, contribute to the identity of the thing, right? So this, this piece is talking about um, a revolution in psychedelic resurgence in the electronic music scene or the rave scene. Um, and what it does really, really well is it talks about how this revival calls back to the DIY origins of the rave scene. Um, it uses a combination of anecdotal experience from the writer as well as anecdotal experiences from the subjects that she interviews, uh, combined with research on psychedelics and even research on the neurological effect of electronic music. Um, and since I don't think I actually said the title yet, it's uh, Raves Psychedelic Resurgence by Maya Rosen Slater in RA. So even, you know, the structure of the writing that uses a personal anecdotal, anecdotal feeling um, and then immediately we'll follow it up with some research-based explanations for what might be causing that feeling, right? And this this is repeated throughout the piece, whether it's um, the anecdotal experience of the writer that's then followed up with some research or the anecdotal experience of someone she talks to um, that she then follows up with the research. Because when you're dealing with something, you know, that's a very subjective experience, um, like psychedelic use or um, spiritual awakening in a rave of some kind, you know, it's a very subjective experience, but the piece is made then more tangible, um, by these bits of research. And I want to read one paragraph early on that I think is a really good example of how this writing tactic is used in this sort of layering of anecdote and research. Uh, so she writes, my dad told me once that if you hold on to something too tight, it will slip out of your hands. I've come to think of the thing as my psyche. Psychedelics are a way of loosening my grip on things, relieving pressure before it boils over, allowing my brain to loosen up and make freewheeling connections. 
According to REBUS, Relaxed Beliefs Under Psychedelics, a model put forward by K.J. Friston and R.L. Carthart-Harris, a psychologist and neuroscientist at Imperial College London, when we take psychedelics, our brains rely less on prior beliefs, resulting in increased cognitive flexibility, altering one's perception of external stimuli, including what we see and hear, as well as our perception of self. This is one theory as to why users commonly experience this sense of unity or oneness. Uh, so it's definitely a testament to the writing skills that those layers flow together so well. Um, and that research just very strongly backs up the subjective anecdotal experience. So the piece then briefly summarizes how the evolution of the electronic music scene is tied to the use of psychedelics. Um, and one of the best examples of this, I thought, was when she describes the origins of the techno scene in, De in Detroit um, and how it spread through parties at unlicensed venues and warehouses. Uh, which means that alcohol, you know, there's not a bar you can walk up to and buy alcohol. It's an unlicensed venue. Um, so psychedelics naturally became more accessible um, and easy to spread there. And that's something how, you know, when the origins of something start that way, um, those characteristics then become part of the identity of the thing. You know, she mentions how even in the modern party scene in Detroit, uh, where people, you know, might, they don't understand the how it originated there but you can still trace the influence of those psychedelic roots in the modern party scene, uh, regardless of whether the people in it are fully conscious of it. Uh, my favorite part of the piece talks about how raving is, she describes it as a pursuit of ecstasy um, and not just as a party to get fucked up at. And this is where sort of like my nerdy, like religious anthropology background, like really like injects into this piece um, because ecstasy is actually an anthropological term that refers to a higher state of being often obtained by shaman or other religious leaders or people seeking enlightenment specifically. Uh, and in those type of altered state rituals, a steady drumbeat actually causes an effect on participants uh, that makes their brain waves sync up to the same wavelengths, which has a measurable neurological response in humans. It increases, you know, flow of serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, like all these things that that allowed early humans to form bonded communities and work together to do things like farming and building long-term communities. So even modern raves and electronic shows, you know, the same combination of community, constant drumbeat, and psychedelics to achieve altered state is actually a modern version of one of the oldest rituals in humanity. Um, and I thought that that was just sort of a really, really cool point that I wanted to elaborate on um, that was brought up in the piece. But you know, what did you guys think? Um, what sort of questions did the piece bring up? Because I feel like this is one that naturally makes you, you know, want to ask questions too. Hmm. Um, I, I, that was the, the part of the piece that, that struck me most too, Brandon was the link of kind of, uh, psychedelic enlightenment, through movement and then the other part that that kind of transitioned into that I thought was really cool was how that kind of ideology as with many things in the artistic space in the world space kind of got adopted by a majority of white men and pushed forward but actually the origins of that uh you know I, I don't know about ideology or enlightenment really are based in 
um, kind of native communities uh, historically from from around the world. And I mean, I think in America, it should be taught a lot more with things like peyote and the Native American community. And that kind of it's always this kind of experience of, of psychedelics is always linked to some kind of movement um, in, in these very native cultures. And I like how the, the piece touched on that. And I think as far as questioning goes is it made me, um, more intrigued to do, to ask more questions and research those, those kind of ideologies. Um, and, uh, historically in those kind of cultures, particularly native American culture and see how that actually has really translate translated on a more specific level from there to where we are now. But, um, kind of introducing that and making sure to note that within the piece I thought was really purposeful and uh, uh, the most intriguing part to me overall, for sure. Yeah, and I actually, I read a couple essays on this topic because I wanted to bring something on electronic music because we haven't really touched on it on the podcast. Um, And it's even worth saying that like the music culture specifically of like Deep House um, originated in Chicago in gay black communities and didn't reach mainstream until it was really adopted Um, by private Catholic school parties in Chicago, um, which then, you know, sort of spread the culture. So that's, you know, just another microcosm of that thing um, being how it originates and then, you know, is taken over by a sort of commercialized uh, version of of the thing that it was, right? Yeah, and I think this piece is a really good job of, like, touching on that historical stuff and, like, the, the really big picture stuff while never losing sight of, like, as you said earlier, the uh, Maya's, like, personal experience, like, her, um, what kind of led her down the path of, like, doing this piece and researching these things. Um, it really balances those really well. And, yeah, I love this specific time kind of piece that can, like, bring in a ton of research from different sources and a ton of people's different experiences and a ton of history and just, like, put them all into some kind of cohesive story it's a very specific thing that i like and a very fine-tuned kind of thing that i like but when it's done well it's just yeah it's just fantastic and it is only just like a cohesive story which itself is a miracle but it's a really emotional one like for all the stuff that's in this piece for how dense it is it never loses sight of the emotion um about like and like the connection to arts and the connection to community and how that's really at the core of the piece, like every step of the way it's talking about how, um, yeah, that kind of that communal feeling that you were talking about, Brandon, that one of the researchers brought up. Um, and yeah, it's really fundamental to any conversation about psychedelics really is like community and personal experience for sure. Um, but Maya's approach like really brings a, like a really healthy dose of kind of, harder colder facts to the table and integrates them really well because they never become the focus of the piece it never becomes like just a study you know they'll be really easy to have this piece be a study of a group of people from afar and never really engage with the group and never get really into the weeds of it it'd be really easy to have it be just a piece of like i'm over here reading the research about this kind of stuff but Maya just dives headfirst into all of it and becomes a part of the community. And that really is really valuable. Yeah. And it kind of frames the piece of making sense of her own experience and making sense of the emotions that she felt and kind of connecting herself with new people, connecting with um, electronic artists as well to kind of 
yeah, make sense of her own emotions, make sense of their emotions, and use those, um, use those like bits of scientific research not as pillars to make the piece, but as little ledges to hang on to to kind of draw a um, kind of a intellectual line for people who aren't engaged with the community. Because like I don't do psychedelics, so for me it would it was really helpful to have those things hang on to and just be like get some kind of idea of how they're feeling amongst the all the explanations of emotions and this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's really, really finely balanced piece, but it's really poetic and really um what's the word enlightening as well. So yeah. Yeah, and it's always like in journalism, you know, you're you're always sort of questioning how much of yourself to put into a piece, right? I think it would have been really easy to to have the sort of experience that this writer had and be inspired by that experience to be like, oh, like I really want to research this and I want I want to understand this and I want to communicate that understanding to other people. Um, but in that process, you got to ask how much of my subjective experience um, is important in me communicating this information to another person, right? And in this story, you know, the way she uses that subjective experience is almost everything, right? Um, this couldn't be told with just purely research because it's not just, you know, numbers on a page. It's a feeling, really, primarily. That's what really the focus here is. It's a feeling. Um, and she uses the research always to to explain that feeling and sort of then link it to other things, um, which is actually another reason this stood out to me is because it's something that I did in the piece that I wrote on Benji, um, where I used sort of my knowledge of the science of, of this working of um, the way that music and rhythm generates community feelings. I used that knowledge to sort of link how uh, Benji talked about when he was younger wanting to be a preacher um, because he saw his parents as preachers. But then as he got older, you know, he kind of grew away from that, um, but really got into performing live music for crowds. And because I had this, you know, knowledge of this, this anthropological thing, um, you know, I was able to use that scientific evidence to link the way that he was inspired by his parents directing crowds is the same kind of energy that's directed in a musical performance. It has the same neurological response in your brain, the same sinking of wavelengths and the creation of community. Uh, so by using, you know, these strong bits of scientific evidence, we can really like make tangible these very hard to describe feelings, right? But you still, you still have to go back to the feeling, but you get a route to get there through the science and through the research. Yeah, you're talking about also like paralleling two experiences and how they kind of like interact each other with each other. And I think that was like a huge and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the idea of organized religion versus what is happening in psychedelics and how they kind of weave back and forth in and out of each other, I thought was really interesting. And then Ryan also talked about like the community versus the individual experience. And I what I also liked about um, Maya's writing was that I think she seems really self-aware. So she kind of says that, you know, the modern versions of organized religion hadn't really worked for her, but then started to go into how this kind of psychedelic ideology and the experience was sort of working for her and, but never like got too far into it to where it leaned into the parts of modern religion that she didn't like. And then at the end made sure to say that her and the community of people that are within the kind of the psychedelic experience, 
just those group of people, they also all feel like that it's an entirely individualized thing and it's not the solution for all, all different people, but Mm. it is an alternative if you're looking for some type of enlightenment that doesn't align directly with organized religion. And I thought, I thought that was really, um, holistic, which I think also kind of bleeds into the the next piece too, which I thought was, was similar. Not in that same way, but. That is definitely important to mention, um, because even from an anthropological standpoint, you know, Slater says that all of her interview subjects said that psychedelics are not necessary to reach this sort of um, ecstatic feeling. And that's also backed up in the anthropology. There's lots of shamanic practices um, that did not use entheogens. Like, it, it's really important for me to communicate that the the hard wiring in our brains for this kind of community experience is not just drug-related. It's very deeply, deeply tied to music, rhythm, and community, right? It's not, entheogens and psychedelics are just one piece. They're just one tool of this like incredibly amazing like chemical network of our brains. Okay, so if there's nothing else in that one, <laughs> should we transition out? I know it's a really strange place to leave that, but <laughs> I think it's, a good, it's fitting it's for good this end. piece. Yeah, it's yeah, fitting for the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was Ray Psychedelic Resurgence by Maya Rosen Slater for RA. Alright, so the final piece we have for you today uh, is one that I brought. It's called Free Tebe. Earl Sweatshirt is coming into his own by Druva Badram for Mixmag. Uh, so yeah, I think all of us have brought like very on-brand pieces today. <laughs> like Brandon bought one that's like a psychological research mixed with psychedelic like kind of descriptions kind of thing, and that's very Brandon, I think. And then Mickey brought a producer that's so related true. piece. Wow. They're all, all three of them are actually so on brand. Ridiculously on brand. So yeah, I had to bring an Earl Sweatshirt piece. Um, but yeah, after today's album drop in January, um, just a ton of great interviews, a ton of great articles, and a ton of great profiles came out about Earl. Um, but this specific profile from Driver really stood out to me, and it's because of this line I remember reading it. Um, he said... The mask of Earl Sweatshirt became canonized and Tebe was nowhere to be found, with um, Earl being his stage name and Tebe being like his real name. And that really connected with me because it's very similar to the interpretations that I've gotten from listening to Earl's music and kind of breaking down a picture of him that he projects through his music. And that kind of connection to Driver kind of made me reconnect with the piece because like, sometimes you'll read an article... And it will be like, okay, I don't really... Like, the the journalists, even though they're a fan, have gotten, like, a different interpretation than me. But sometimes when you read something, you can tell they're a fan and you can tell they've gotten kind of the same interpretation, and that's quite special. Because Earl really seemed to get sick of celebrity very quickly and but was kind of forced to cling to it for a while because that's how people knew him. That's kind of how people addressed him as Earl. And... He never really got a chance to find out who he was as a grown person outside of celebrity. So he was kind of clinging to this mask of Earl that had just been torn apart by the public and kind of been given its own life away from him, which kind of left him himself not really knowing 
not really having a strong identity. So that kind of, so that line really connected with me. And that's why amongst all the interviews, all the things that I was done, this kind of piece and this kind of angle really, um, really connected with me. And the angle that Driver goes with is kind of summed up by these lines where he says, it was a run of releases which for any artist would have been considered seminal, but it never felt complete as if Earl was always circling Tebe, the two never in conversation with each other. It's on his upcoming release, Sick, where the 27-year-old finally starts to find himself again. And, yeah, exactly what I was saying. Earl always circling Tebe, the two never in conversation with each other. I thought that was a really poetic way to put um, what I'd been feeling about Earl's music for quite a long time. And the execution of... This angle really rests on Driver's interviewing skills, and I'm always curious to know if an angle arises through an interview, or if Driver kind of had the idea in going in before and had to kind of shape the conversation in this way. I get the feeling from this piece that it was the latter, because of the kind of how specific it is for Driver and how it seemed like Driver is just a fan and kind of had this interpretation just like I had, and wanted to ask Earl very specifically about these things. Because of the way the profile's laid out, the way the story's laid out, the progression of it, it seemed very intentional from the start. If it wasn't, I'd be really interested to know. Um, because you don't really get a back-and-forth conversation between Driver. Obviously, it's an, it, you just get snippets of oh, what he says. Um, but for him to kind of, one, have that kind of piece... Uh, structure for the piece and to have Earl give him such detailed and deep gems throughout the article speaks to his one his interviewing skills and being able to like cultivate a really calm environment for the for the artist I think that's something we stress about probably the most going into an interview is like I really hope I make them feel comfortable so they actually give me some good stuff and if they don't, then, you know, that's on me. You know, that's like the biggest thing like for that an interviewer can do. And two, just having the presence of mind to um, have an angle going in or make an angle out of it that I think is really interesting and really connects to Earl fans. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'll give it up to you guys then. So what did you think of this article? And, like, did you also connect to the angle on that note as well? Like, does do you think that the angle that Driver takes really lines up with um what you get from Miles music and I'll go to Brandon for that. Yeah, I think that this is a piece that flat out could not be written by someone who did not really understand the subject. Um even you know like and I'm not I don't just mean that that's context that he gathered from the interview. I mean this is an understanding that took place before the interview. Um very clearly. Um could you repeat the the question you asked sort of right at the end of your of your statement about the the, the theme? Yeah, kind of like, do you think that theme lines up to what you experience of Earl's music? Oh, that is an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this this whole piece feels like Earl's music um, in, in the writing style, in a very similar way to uh, something we recognized in Dylan Green's piece on MF Doom, uh, where we felt like he was writing, you know, in a style that was reminiscent of the person that he was writing about, um, this whole story, you know, from from the words to even like the design of the page and the uh, the clothes that Earl is wearing, the photographs taken with the piece are all, you know, extremely thematic to Earl's music. 
And I think something that like I have identified in Earl's music is sort of like frustration and sort of and sort of a tiredness. And it's a feeling of like, you know, not I don't ever feel like Earl ever gives you the answer. You know what I mean? Like he's just expressing the tiredness and the frustration. Um, and this piece does the same thing. I don't think it really ends with an answer. It doesn't end with anything that's super clear, super pointed. You know, it touches on um, the relationship between Earl and Tyler, the creator, and actually contextually sets it up um, in a better way than most anything I've read on the subject of their relationship. But even like it has this like really like ambiguous um, comment like on that, the main point that it makes. All Earl says is, you know, it wasn't beef. He says of their apparent drifting apart. We just hung out, did some Tyler shit. We ate brunch, went to the park. Like, he's not giving you the full thing, right? And that's very, seems very Earl, both in his music and in his personality and in the style that the piece is written. Yeah, I think Mickey very much relates to the fact that Earl does not give you everything, <laughs> <laughs> considering what he thinks of Earl's music. Uh, yeah, Earl definitely doesn't give you any answers on purpose, it feels like, every time I listen, for sure. Um, I want to talk about the what you talked about first, though, which is the intentionality of the piece and how that kind of leads into the structure. Um, I think this is a very difficult thing to do as a journalist that Druva does unbelievably well, which is to have a, a very, it seems like he has a very like focused context to approach the piece and an ideology behind it. But when you read it, it feels like the piece almost unfolds onto itself, which I don't know if I relate so much um, to like Earl's actual style of rapping as you guys do. But it, this felt very, very masterful to me in that kind of like connecting these these ideas to each other. And I want to go back to what what Ryan honed in on with um, the idea of the mask and losing himself to Earl sweatshirt and how that idea is in a way inherently some sort of death uh, of self and that how that death kind of, and this is the example of the piece kind of folding into itself kind of collides with Earl's actual experiences with grief. It felt like he was like, he lost the version of himself and then that got coupled with this kind of, cyclical feeling grief that bled into his albums and then interestingly enough that goes into the the kind of process of healing that goes through making the albums and processing that grief and then sick which is the other side of it that drew a kind of foreshadows in the beginning and then comes to at the end is this feeling of a little bit of a rebirth of self at the same time when Earl literally just brought another life into the world. And when all of those ideas connected in one thing to me, when I was reading it, I was like, boom, like he hit the epiphany with like four things kind of calming all together at once. Um, and then like Brandon said, it was cool. Cause it kind of faded off slowly into kind of things with Tyler and different things. It didn't have this like concise ending, but it did have this to me at least when, because uh, I believe he kind of talks about sick repeatedly, but then when it goes into hit, talking about how his son is kind of paralleled and and even the fear that still leaks from the beginning to the end of it and kind of builds with the the kind of grief into rebirth thing. Um, yeah, it felt 
like a very kind of cathartic way to write the piece. Um, and, and again, that definitely comes from having a real point of view or an idea going into it, but making sure that you don't let that drive you in this kind of tunnel vision way. And you still allow whatever the interview or the ideas are to fold into one another. Damn, Mickey really yeah, I mean, looking for the A on the on the American Lit essay. That was the way you, you <laughs> pulled that together actually made it even make more sense in my head. Um, go ahead, Ryan. And then I want to circle back to um, what Mickey said about on the piece unfolding, because uh, I think that that mm. is the word I was looking for um, that sort of summarizes a lot of the thoughts I had about the piece. But go ahead, Ryan, you had something. Yeah, I just want to say like, yeah, like Mickey was talking about, it's the way that the piece is structured and like kind of have to have that epiphany moment and the article never really given you an answer. It's all kind of so emblematic of Earl's career. And it goes back to what I'm saying about Jova just being a fan and like writing something that's so true to Earl. And from Earl, I've always got the sense that he just needed his batteries recharged. You know, he's always kind of like stressed out by the album cycle He's always kind of stressed out by the whole public image and him disappearing is just like the best thing for him. And yeah, kind of loving that space and growing in that space and being very self-aware of all of your flaws and all of the ways that you've grown and kind of finding this strange place in between where I was very honest in this interview and Driva takes a, a... he takes an angle of never saying, yeah, Earl's life's great now, or Earl's life is still bad. Like, it's none of that. And it's so, so true to Earl. And then, like, I wrote about Earl, I wrote about some rap songs doing a similar thing where he, like, bounces between being very positive and just, like, wallowing in sadness. And it's not as extreme here anymore, but just on the way that Earl writes, he'll, like, talk about something just like just mention something that's like really positive that's something that he's like really proud of doing some way that he's grown and then just talk about like i also struggle with this as well and the piece is exactly like that the piece follows him through those backs and forths and just kind of presents his life as it is really really well and like you said he he writes in the same way i would write and the piece has those ebbs and flows the same way that Oh, well, we'll write in a verse. Yeah. yeah. Brandon, go ahead and say what you had to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mickey, Mickey really like, like sparked something in my brain when he said like unfold. Um, cause it was a point I was going to bring. And first I want to read what really is like half a sentence. Um, but is really like representative of this concept of how the piece unfolds. So, um, it's close to the top of the, of the story. Earl morphed quickly from the rebellious adolescent to a person who lived with world weary eyes. That's half a sentence, and it says so, so much. Um, the piece really builds upon the information that it gives you because context is so important. You can't understand you know, the real meat of this piece, which is Earl as he is right now, without understanding Earl as he was. Um, and I like you know, when writers are able to grab that firm understanding and communicate it. Um, to explain something new, something that makes whatever this is in music, it's often a new album. Um, but you need, you need the reader to understand why this is different from the past. What is new about this? What is the, the, um, 
the shining point, the thing that we take out of this newness. But you can't understand that without understanding the evolution of the past. And the quote that I actually had marked, um, which Ryan has already read, I'm just going to circle back to real quick, goes to, um, as if Earl was always circling Thebe, the two never end conversation together. It's on his upcoming release. Tebe, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> As if Earl was always circling Tebe, the two never in conversation together. It's on his upcoming release, Sick, where the 27-year-old finally starts to find himself again. That tells you so much. That tells you that this is where, this is what's new, is that he's starting to find himself again. That hasn't been taking place. It's starting again. Um, and then the way that the writer goes long on Earl's father um, and the grief that Earl experienced feels like its own self-contained portion of the story. Um, but then you get the to the part about how Earl now has a child of his own, and you understand that that what felt like a, a major component of the story is just a piece that leads into the next component of the story. It's context um, that's important to understand this place here and now. Right. And that goes back into the <laughs> the kind of, uh, which now funny in this context that we're all kind of talking about it is a little funny of like the kind of, you know continual steady gloom of of earl in the music and it's like he he fears you know he has all of these very kind of traumatic things happen he's like fearing death for this period of time and then he has his own kid and all of a sudden he goes from probably what was the thing before he felt like he had to put the mask of Earl on where he was fearing what was going to happen with his life that transfers into the fear of what's going to happen with his kid's life. So it's still this kind of over overarching thing of like, Oh no, what the fuck is going to happen? But then it just transfers from the idea of death to the idea of life and what's going to happen with life. Um, And then, yeah, that still goes back into the unfolding thing. Another thing I really, really just wanted to point out about this piece that I noticed um, was the use of the poll quotes, the block quotes, um, a lot of times when I'm reading something, especially when it's not print, especially when it's online, um, the use of poll quotes feels kind of redundant They're with their placement. Um, they're often almost like it's hard to describe it as like a, a spoiler, but oftentimes it almost feels like you're getting the quote where it's not supposed to be. Um, and in this story, the poll quotes are placed pretty far from where the quote actually falls into the story but they're still placed in a location that feels extremely smooth, right? It doesn't feel like an interruption or, or a jarring moment of in the flow of the piece, uh, which is interesting because the quotes show up twice. Then they show up where the pull quote is, and then they show up a few paragraphs down. Um, and the context where they're placed both times is very intentional. Um, and just, I want to read this one pull quote because it's, it's the antithesis or not the antithesis, the, the opposite of the antithesis, the tithesis, is that a real word? <laughs> but it's like a perfect, a perfect example of like, of absolutely stunning pull quote. Um, and that's when Earl says, what's that saying? You can be happy or right. I'd rather be right. So I'm learning how to be happy. Like, you get that as the pull quote, and then a few paragraphs down, but the context is important in both those places. Yeah, I really like what you said there about like, yeah, some quotes, some pull quotes sometimes acting like a spoiler because it's not a spoiler, like you're not ruining the next sentence, but it's like they're so close together sometimes. It's like, what's the point of putting that there when the next paragraph has that thing? And I love the intentionality of like, because it's not like it's um, the piece is structured exactly like the conversation was. It's not like, oh, they discussed this thing and then they discussed this thing. Like, he doesn't have to do that. He intentionally placed them where they're placed and he kind of lets each quote have a dual meaning when he does that. 
he lets mm. it refer to two things and I think that's really brilliant and really like it takes someone who has cracked this piece wide open to do that you know you have to have a full view of the piece to be able to say oh wait that quote there really relates to that thing and I can make it relate to that thing but by not bringing this topic up too early and letting the piece have its natural course and I think yeah it's really brilliantly structured um, Mickey, anything else to say on that piece or about Earl in general? Have you suddenly come around on him? <laughs> uh, plead the fifth. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I, the only other kind of major thing that I noticed, which is, and I think I realized we're kind of talking a lot about repetition um, in Earl's kind of output in life, um, and the the repetition is explored also within the community of people he makes art with. So like it started within the odd future thing. And then he had to kind of have this downward thing where he separated on his own terms and then his kind of rise back up and coming into sick has been through, uh, the community of like alchemists and Z loopers and that kind of crew Navy blue and all of those people have kind of came up together in the, what I'll call the Ryan sphere of rap. And, uh, (laughs) It's just kind of a, it's a cool, cool thing that, you know, with all of the other kind of repetitions that Driva um, explored in the piece that that also tied into. This piece had me listening to Navy Blue last night after I read it, actually. Oh, nice. That makes me happy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, and yeah, that does it for this episode of In Search of Source. So let me shout out these pieces in reverse order we had free tebe earl sweatshirt is coming into his own by driva baram from mixmag then we had rave psychedelic resurgence by maya rosen slater for ra and we started with i made beats with new york draw raps highest producer cash cobain by a beam for gq uh let us know what you thought of these articles go read them and hear us up on social media and talk to us about things uh, we'd love to know what you think, if you if you missed anything in these articles, if you appreciate anything. If you are the writer of these articles, please let us know what you thought of us thinking about your stuff. And of course, of all, as always, if you are a writer and you um, feel like your work is unappreciated, we would love to give it a boost on the show. If you know someone whose work is unappreciated, exactly the same thing, please hit us up. And as always, you know, leave reviews wherever you can leave reviews and ratings and that. It really helps us. And really helps our mission of just like, you know, supporting great journalism, which deserves it and isn't done enough. But um, yeah, that does us for this week. We have been Mickey Hellebuck. Peace on off. Thanks for listening, everybody. Brandon Hill. Yep, thank you. And Ryan Gore. We'll see you next week. episode of podcast let's go featured ryan gore michaela back and brandon hill the same source code collective the episode is edited by me charlie taylor of the fifth End podcast network music for the show is punched up by barsty this is your breaks video to use this has been essential source for the podcast network production next with barsty job records Central source fifth element and content covering the episode can all be found in the full show notes below thanks for listening we'll see you next time as we continue our search for source